Episode 4, A New Hope. It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil Galactic Empire. During the battle, Rebel spies managed to steal secret plans to the Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armored space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. Pursued by the Empire's sinister agents, Princess Leia races home aboard her starship, custodian of the stolen plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. Hey all you gals and guys, Grayson Parker Marcotte of the Sleeping Giant Podcast here, and in this special edition Star Wars episode, we are covering episode 4, A New Hope. This time around, I've got Brian Byerly of the Marvel Mythos Podcast, and he's going to give us his take on this film as we frame it against the hero's journey. Y'all go on and get comfy. We are about to begin. Brian, are you there, sir? Hey, yeah, I'm here. All right. So finally, guys, check this out. I have Brian Byerly here, and uh, we're going to talk about Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. But here's the thing. Brian has admitted to me that he is not a die-hard Star Wars fan. Brian, is that true? That um, unfortunately is correct. Yeah. It, it, so it's, hopefully, it's not unfortunate. It depends on who's listening, right? So hopefully no one turns it off just because I'm just a casual Star Wars fan. Um, let, let, let them save it and then hear some of my views before they actually turn, turn it off. Well, I would hope so. I'm a casual X-Men fan, I think. <laughs> Although I like X-Men more than all the others. So I don't know. I don't really know what defines a casual when it comes to comics. What, what is your definition of casual? Oh God. Uh, casual means that you appreciate it. You enjoy it. You watch them. You will pay money to go see them. But at the end of the day, you're not going to spend hours upon hours researching every single person that's in the movie or every single character that exists within that universe or um, getting bent out of shape if maybe it doesn't conform to your expectations. <laughs> okay, um, so I'm not a casual That's what I would call casual. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm somewhere just over the mark, I think. If, I'm inv- if I've invested <laughs> hours upon hours of reading the, uh, reading the, the classic not classic X-Men, actually, because that's its own thing. But the um, but the original 1960s X-Men all the way through the 70s now. Oh, God. Yeah. I'm, I, I guess I'm invested. Um, so, I mean, but you could still be a casual fan, right? Because you're not going back and rereading these multiple times. Like, you're reading it. You're enjoying the story as it plays out. You're not going, like... Um, into huge depth on like who each character is like you're not like oh destiny showed up so who is destiny and then like figuring out who she is and everything that she connects to like i don't know that's kind of where i'm stuck because as i'm reading these i'm finding that um some of the stories go into other titles and i'm i can't stop myself i'm compulsive i have to find out (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i'd say i'm just over the line like if i had to guess Sounds like it. I, I'll tell like you it. this. I I love the idea of X-Men on the big screen more than I enjoy reading it. But the idea has not yet been fulfilled, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yep. Oh, it makes perfect sense. There's been brief little moments across a few movies, but as far as like the actual idea, and that's why I'm like excited to see what Marvel Studios do with it. But at the same time, like I'm a, I'm a Cyclops guy. So I'm like, right. I really hope they kind of put him in the role of Captain America because that's kind of what he is for the X-Men. But I have a, a, a sneaky suspicion 
they're going to launch it where they're like in the middle of um, existing and Storm will be the leader and Cyclops will not even be around. Um, mm, that would, then, I don't know, man, then, that would really upset a lot of people, I think. Yeah, I think it would. But at the same time, um, it it seems like something that would work as far as the whole um, desire to increase females in the, the power roles or the leadership roles. Sorry, leadership roles within the MCU because there aren't a whole lot and they're moving that way with Captain Marvel. Um, That's true. So I could see them doing something like that. And maybe Cyclops was on the team and like there's hints about him and maybe he's like halfway into the movie he shows up or something. And, but it's still Storm's team at that point. That would be um, interesting. I, I don't know. I wouldn't have a problem with that personally. I mean, you, you have taught me to appreciate Cyclops a lot more than I did in the past. <laughs> um, and then uh, I guess kind of moving through uh, X-Men before Dawn of X um, when Cyclops was resurrected, I guess. I, I really yeah, appreciated my, that character. Basically, uh, Joss Whedon's run in Astonishing kind of flipped the script for me with Cyclops. Um, and then kind of everything after that with Bendis and and now with Hickman. Like I think, yeah. I think Cyclops has a really interesting 21st century take that all kind of plays perfectly with how he ended in the 90s. But... Um, but anyway, we're not here to talk Cyclops That's true. and the X-Men, right? <laughs> that, well, it's, I, kinda, I, just, I want to kind of establish a feel for, for where you're at and where I'm at. Because I think that having somebody on the show who is not as into Star Wars as I am, and that's a vast understatement, I imagine. Because um, <laughs> I, I love it. I love Star Wars. I, I live and breathe it for the most part. It's basically just infused in my DNA. Um, at this point. And uh, so when I was watching this tonight, actually, I, this is one of the very few times that I've actually pulled out. Uh, I have a DVD that is um, the original cut of Star Wars, uh, unedited, unaltered. I mean, the quality is what you would expect it to be because um, it was it is rather the highest quality that we had available at the time. Of course, if you compare it to like uh, what you see on on Disney Plus now and like the 4K and it's it's just it's ridiculous. But um, I will take that unaltered copy uh, every time because I'm watching it tonight. And I'm watching it with my little girl and I never realized how many times as I'm watching the film my hair just stands on end like by itself. Like no, I don't have to think about it. It just happens and I I get super emotional. So yeah, the uh, I'm 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 fully invested in this movie. So um, so okay. So let me ask you this then. So you sure. you get emotional like you talked about getting emotional while watching this um, with your daughter tonight. Do you have a similar reaction when you watch the altered versions? Mm, no, because I'm like I kind of keep feeling angry <laughs> every time something happens that annoys me so i'm just like ah now the only thing though and i and i can say this with complete certainty the only thing that that is re- remotely similar is when i'm watching the film and it's the uh, the binary sunset where luke storms off and uh, he looks out into the horizon and there are the twin sons of tatooine and john williams score kicks in that it doesn't matter what I'm watching. That scene always gets me. But yeah, watching this, having not seen it in ages, it was it was just a blast. And I was reminded 
I guess, why I, I love Star Wars so much. Because I've been having my doubts lately, man, <laughs> about it. So that was that was good to go. All right. So yeah, yeah. here's kind of what I want to do. Um, I have a, I mean, I could probably recite this movie from beginning to end. Uh, but what I want to do is I've got a scene list here. And I thought that because the hero's journey is it, it's it's front and center i think it was very evident to me how george lucas god bless him um more or less just took joseph campbell's ideas and theories of of the hero's journey and just kind of cut and pasted his story onto that which i'm not knocking at all because it works beautifully and in another of our shows we actually discussed maybe how or why star wars uh, has become so enmeshed in people's lives and popular culture and that, you know, it was more or less a skeleton that was allowed to grow organically. But Joseph Campbell, he's responsible for writing the the book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, excuse me, Hero with a Thousand Faces that uh, so profoundly influenced and impacted George Lucas. And that was, uh, that book was published in 1949 and was sort of his take on, um, what they call in comparative mythology the monomyth sort of the idea that you know every story uh has the same components you know and that uh, that to me is personally very fascinating and obviously it was fascinating to lucas and he kind of took that injected his his ideas and his world into it and and allowed it to to kind of grow and take shape so i think that's really cool and i think that looking at star wars from luke's perspective in the hero's journey and maybe talking about a few of the things outside of that would be a good way to frame this so that you and I can move through the film together. That was a lot of talking, but yeah. <laughs> hopefully that made sense. Yep, It does. And it's, it's a good setup and just a little bit more um, with the whole Joseph Campbell piece. I didn't know a whole lot about it, but looking into it for this, apparently he did like a six uh, episode um, or six hour like documentary or series called the power of myth. Mm-hmm. And five of those six hours were recorded at Skywalker ranch. Apparently so. Um, yeah. Which was crazy to me. And uh, I guess Lucas is quoted as saying something along the lines of like, before he had even read Joe's books, he had kind of created this um, or started this like path with these characters and then realized like, holy crap, once he actually read it, he was like, that's my first draft. Um, so he kind of, uh, incorporated it or expanded on it for as far as I could tell. I'll take him at his word. <laughs> <'Cause there's>, <laughs> <laughs> he, he also said that he had the whole thing planned from the beginning. Um, yeah, that was clearly wasn't accurate. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but <laughs> But I will, I will give him the slight benefit of the doubt here just because this whole, it, it's not so much that, it, in my mind, it's not so much that Campbell created this narrative uh, right. for the hero's journey. It's that he realized that like it was so permeated within so many different cultures throughout time. And he just kind of collected and was like, here's why these stories resonate. And so it's almost like I could see Lucas having started this, this movie or this script sure. and getting to a point and being like, wait, uh, you know, like feeding off of all the stuff that he's already read in classic literature and everything. And sure. then being like, oh, wow, I'm doing the same thing that everyone else does. This is why um, this is happening. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a strong believer in in synchronicity and and those sorts of things developing for you, especially when you throw yourself fully into a creative project. I mean, I don't think there's any coincidence that uh, Campbell was influenced by Carl Jung, which can learn you a thing or two about synchronicity and and that whole mystic and uh, esoteric aspect of things. But we won't get into all of that tonight. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think that would be a good idea for us, for us to do that. So let me ask you, go in like right in, let's just jump right into this. What was your first experience with this movie? And was it the first film that you ever saw in the Star Wars saga? So it's really hard for me to recall all the, the details about when I saw these movies. I know growing up, um, my dad liked these movies. He was what I would also call a casual fan of Star Wars. Uh, he enjoyed them, would watch them anytime they were on TV. So like I know at some point I saw them with him um, and I'm sure he's the one that kind of got me into them. But as far as like how old I was or which one I saw first, it's impossible for me to know because I had lived in a, a family that was very much about movies, at least at that time. Mm-hmm. And I was six months old when I first saw Nightmare on Elm Street. So, right on. Um, which is weird to think about. Um, but apparently when I was like six months to a year old, they kind of like, they learned that for whatever reason, and you can, you can judge me however you want or make whatever assumptions about me that you want. But apparently from six to 12 months, the only way that I would fall asleep is if they turned on nightmare on Elm street. Um, which that is, is fascinating. Also weird. Yeah, and then they, uh, but I'm I'm spiraling out, but it's a funny story. Apparently, like, when I was, like, two, the only two people that I would imitate were Elvis and Freddy Krueger, and I would walk around with my hand out in a claw and say, I, Freddy, I, Freddy. That's quite um, a mashup. So, yeah, so I'm sure I probably saw Star Wars at some point when I was in my wee little, you know, childhood stage, and so it's just kind of like a natural thing for me to know what it is or, or uh, whatnot, but I will say that... Watching them as a teen and then again before the sequel trilogy came out, I think that's where I kind of like watched it and I was like, okay, these are actually really high quality films that were made at a time when that type of special effects stuff was unheard of and it still held up uh, really well for the time when I watched them. Oh, yeah. Um, Even today, like even today, like I know some of the stuff they've altered or whatever, but from what I've seen of the original stuff, it's still mind boggling that they were able to put together something like they did. So I think from that aspect and then to kind of piggyback off of like what my my personal opinions of I know Han Solo when I was growing up was my favorite, which I think most people would feel the same way. Um, Well, he's awesome. But. (laughs) <laughs> he is he is but as i've adulted you know like growing up gambit was my favorite x-man but now it's cyclops sure. so in a similar vein growing up han was my favorite but after the prequel trilogy obi-wan takes that spot oh yeah for me. yeah two very different but no less awesome characters i think yeah i think it's like once i got older and had a family i realized responsibility is kind of important to me so um i went from being like that swash swash busk buckler or whatever sure to being like that responsible like hey got to do these things Um, no totally i get it i mean i i think that i've my attitude towards certain characters has definitely changed as i've aged um but i'm i'm not going to spend a whole lot of time um describing the film obviously if you're listening to this show chances are you you 
have at least watched this movie one time and you are aware of rebels the rebellion and the uh, galactic empire so we're gonna kind of skip all of that and set this up from from luke's perspective so if we're gonna start with the hero's journey we're gonna kind of frame that first i'm gonna go ahead and say that um, i am shamelessly ripping off an infographic that i got from writer's digest um, th- they're not paying me, but, uh, I'm a fan of writer's digest. In fact, they that, ugh, excuse me, writer's digest was one of the, uh, one of the first sort of like online sources of information that I would seek out and go to when I was, um, when I was coming up in my, uh, my writing years, of course I've, I've written on and off all my life, but when I took a serious stab at it, I guess you could say, um, that wasn't, that wasn't my my literature of choice though i usually bought poets and writers but that's that's another story altogether we'll we'll thank writers digest for this really sweet infographic with these primary colors that they were so considerate to uh to illustrate it in because uh you know that's about all i can process um okay <laughs> they, did a, they did a really good job bringing it down in a simple way for us to understand yeah. it because they have little you know icons that show you like this is the part of the movie that you know indicates this moment yeah and and i'm totally okay with that because if we were to i guess it's important to say that this is not the definitive breakdown of the hero's journey because joseph campbell he popularized the idea, I think, uh, amongst writers and creatives, um, popularized the idea of the monomyth and, and, uh, and the hero's journey, but it's not something that he invented per se. And there are so many takes and theories and ideas on the monomyth that you could have a podcast series based on, on ideas about the monomyth. So we're not going to do all that. And that's why I feel absolutely no shame and taking this infographic from uh, from Writer's Digest. So, thanks, y'all. And since you were and since you were referencing your source, I will reference a few of mine just so it doesn't come off as plagiarism. <laughs> um, but if I have some thoughts, uh, you know, I will expand upon these. But um, some basis for good, uh, you know, understanding of how Star Wars: A New Hope ties into the monomyth. Um, scriptlab.com. Uh, right practice uh, with W R I T E and then uh, Alan I S D dot org um, has some really good information on how a new hope is monomyth. Yeah, man, we have to utilize our sources and you know, that's one of the weird things about being uh, a podcaster is yeah, we have conversations with other people all the time. And sometimes we would like to have recorded those conversations um, and ultimately, that's what a podcast is, is a conversation or a series of conversations. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if you're publishing information and you are reporting more or less news and, and offering your opinion, et cetera, it, it does in a sort of way make you um, part of, the, uh, part of the, the, the journalistic culture, as it were. And I think that you do have some you have some responsibility <laughs> to uh to not rip people off and uh and if you do you know definitely give credit where where the credits do thank you for understanding i'm glad that uh that, that didn't fall on deaf ears no not at all and i mean and it's i uh, i i'd like to think that more podcasters than not are that responsible um well, maybe not actually. I don't want to go down that road. Okay, let's <laughs> let's let's talk more about Star Wars. Okay, so we have we have this broken into into acts and steps. 
um, along the hero's journey. So we have the young man, Luke, Luke Skywalker, he is called. He is a moisture farmer on the planet Tatooine with his aunt and uncle. Sometimes I say aunt, sometimes I say aunt. So if I switch between those as we speak, whatever. Um, so you have this kid who is clearly bored and restless and wants to kind of just do something with his life. He knows that, that farming moisture on a desert planet is not the thing for him. He has proclivities, uh, such as piloting. He has a T 16 that, uh, that he frequently flies through beggars Canyon. So he's got these, these urges and these dreams to kind of escape this, you know, the, uh, the dinginess of Tatooine and it just doesn't look like it's working out for him. Um, I'd say at this point, a lot of us as the viewer, we probably identify immediately with Luke because we were either there at some point or are there at the point that you're watching this film. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the intent, right? That Luke is supposed to represent, uh, just about everybody that, um, that, that has existed more or less where you're this young teen who's wanting to break out and experience life on your own. And you're still dealing with the mundane. You're trying to help your family as best as you can. But deep down, like you have these dreams and aspirations that you want to achieve yourself, but you're kind of stuck yeah. in this. So you, this you situation. immediately identify with it. I don't think there are very many people that don't, <laughs> don't identify with that. And I will say that, uh, speaking of Luke Skywalker, a lot of people talk about how, like when you're judging the prequels or you're judging the the sequel trilogy or whatever, they say that, well, if you look at the original films, the acting wasn't that great. I, I really disagree. Um, I, I've got to say that I've I've loved Mark Hamill's performances as Luke Skywalker um, in, in every original trilogy film. And I thought they were genuine and <laughs> I thought he was a good actor. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily feel like it was the acting. I think um, maybe it was... <laughs> And I, and I struggle to say that, like, I don't want to say this because, like, it's Lucas, but the prequel trilogy almost makes me feel like I'm validated in saying this, that it wasn't necessarily the acting. It may have been the directing of those actors in some instances, but I haven't put a whole lot of thought into it, just knowing that I originally felt the way that, that you just described, right? Like, I back in the day, I used to think about, like, oh, man, these... It was just poor acting back then, and maybe that's mm -hmm. why I couldn't feel as die hard. But then when I would watch it again, I'd be like, no, the acting was actually pretty good, <laughs> so I don't think it was that. Right. Um, but then seeing the prequels, I'm kind of like, well, maybe it was the directing, because a director can kill a great actor as quick as anything. Uh, um, yeah, absolutely. I think the, the capacity of a director is often overlooked um, from film critics and uh, people of the internet as it were who like to consider themselves film critics but you you have this situation you've got this this desert planet which you first catch a glimpse of in the opening scene of the movie um and it's really cool how it all kind of flows i think we have luke who's the point of view character but you're getting the idea that you've got all of this stuff happening around him that there is in fact this bigger world beyond where where things bigger than luke are taking place and it's not in the cut that we see, um, but and one of the new Blu-rays, you may be able to see the deleted scene, but in this scenario, Luke is actually watching this battle take place um, with his binoculars uh, from the Lars homestead. So that was actually a scene that was written for the film and was filmed, um, 
but uh, was cut for whatever reason. So I think that that's really cool. Like he was seeing on the almost on the periphery this huge event that was going to shape his life and the lives of so many other people. And but it was just at such a great distance that he he had no idea. And to me, I think that there's something very poetic about that. Yeah, um, I'm like processing that because I didn't realize that. I think that's a really cool concept and um, to to show it that because then it also, you know, helps solidify that you're viewing things from his angle and seeing like this young man who's truly wanting to get out and join the rebels um, or to do something different with his life. Uh, than what he's doing and he, you know, like you clearly see like he's looking up at the stars right to see this so like that's a stargazing like this is what he wants to do um but at the same time i i get the the idea of not including it because then it's almost so on the nose whereas if you have this whole big world taking place outside of him and then you just randomly are shown him i think it I don't know. I think it adds to the story a little bit better doing it that way. At the same time, I'm kind of torn because I think it would have been cool to have that in the movie. So I'm not, I'm not totally sold either way. Yeah. You get these cool ideas, but like there's not always room for every cool idea. Um, cool ideas don't always make the story progress. Um, I, I, <laughs> and this just, uh, is so funny. It doesn't have anything to do with the film, but, uh, I remember I was reading an interview with Josh Hame from Queens of the Stone Age and whoever was, was conducting the interview asked him about his songwriting process. And he was like, Oh, uh, and I'm paraphrasing of course, but he was like, you know, sometimes when you're working on something, you might have this really great idea and it sounds so good and you want to make it work in this one song, but it just doesn't. So he's like, what I've learned over the years is you just take that and you just make that a completely different song, um, which I think is really cool because it's, you know, sort of waste not, want not. But, uh, but yeah, it just it, it clearly illustrates when you see these cut scenes that not every cool idea fits the, uh, the flow of the narrative. And I guess that's what makes a, uh, that's what makes a better artist is their capacity to understand that and cut it when it's necessary so uh, hashtag release the snyder cut <laughs> oh you <laughs> <laughs> i was kidding i don't want to see that please don't <laughs> oh man so yeah don't pull my string but uh okay so you have all of these things that are taking place and you've got luke you know this farm boy on tatooine and uh and all of a sudden like out of nowhere he's thrust into this unique situation of having these two droids appear more or less uh he's he's out shopping for droids with his uncle and uh these two droids that were previously on the starship that he was watching have have arrived and unbeknownst to him they are carrying the plans of the death star that leia had bestowed upon r2d2 so uh fate totally intervenes when his uncle decides that he wants to purchase the r5 unit uh which then explodes um, <laughs> before he can actually uh, take it into his ownership or possession. And uh, Luke says, oh, this R2 unit's got an R5 unit, excuse me, got a bad motivator. And then, uh, and then of course, you, you find that he's now in possession of R2, which, by the way, when we were younger, we wanted to uh, start a death metal band called Bad Motivator uh, that would, of course, be <laughs> Star Wars-themed. But I think that there are probably like five or six Bad Motivators now. So it probably wouldn't work out. But so you've got this really interesting scenario where they 
and when I say they, I mean the uh, the Lars family and and Luke Skywalker. They they exist in this this uh, situation where they're often bartering, I guess, for goods from these little critters called Jawas, and they're desert desert scavengers. Excuse me, uh, passing through towns and and homesteads, offering their wares, and I, to me, that just it felt really natural. Um, like I just totally I buy it. Like there's not any part of watching this original film that I don't buy. Um, I don't know if you felt similarly, but uh, but it just it felt very genuine. Yeah. So the idea of like Owen and Luke going out and and purchasing some droids made perfect sense given the fact that he's you know what is he like a farmer and luke's supposed to be helping him with his crops and like he's clearly struggling and can't do it on his own so like this whole um scenario that's been painted for owen and luke is very real very believable and um, very relatable for a lot of people now where it gets kind of interesting is what you said like you know fate is it fate or the force i feel like that's a conversation yeah i think they're later I think as far as the Star Wars universe is concerned, they're interchangeable um, to a degree. Now, I mean, we could really split hairs and talk about things that happen in other films, but I think like for the sake of at least this movie, they can be interchangeable. Um, yeah, the way, the way I took it from this movie is that fate, the force is fate, but fate is not always determined and those who are capable of manipulating the force are able to change fate. I can I can dig it. <laughs> there's a lot to un- kinda, yeah, like- there's a lot to unpack there, <laughs> but I think I followed you. Um, and and I yeah. think that especially when you have the luxury of going back to watch these movies after having thought about it a lot, you know, you um, you do have that as a luxury, and you can kind of start to connect dots. Um, but I, I guess what I meant when I said it, it, it felt it felt genuine is that in this particular movie, and, and to a degree, The Empire Strikes Back and The Return of the Jedi, um, it just all feels very real. Even when I was a child and I was watching uh, watching this movie, and, and Tatooine, that did seem alien to me. And, and of course, it's, you know, um, it's Tunisia. It's, it's a real desert on this planet, not, not a set that I think lends itself to the credibility of the scenario. But because... I was a wee lad who has never been to Tunisia or really seen a desert. It felt alien to me. Um, but then you have like the droids and and uh, and the subsequent effects that uh, that are all practical. You know what I mean? Like they just they're all quite real, and um, it just lends itself a, a, a believability. I think is what I mean. Oh yeah, totally. I think. Um, I think that's why Force Awakens works better than really the um, prequel trilogy and the rest of the sequel trilogy because they relied so much more on practical effects to kind of mirror what was happening in the original trilogy. Um, so I think there's almost a sense of that same believability in The Force Awakens, even though um, obviously there's some CGI and, and modern day practical effects in there, but for the most part, like they tried to do a lot of what was done in the original trilogy. And like you said, um, the way that they shot the desert stuff, the way that they created these, um, different species like the Jawas and and everything else, uh, they did a fantastic job of making you feel like this is a, a very, um, dense 
universe and, and dense planets that you'd be visiting where it would make sense where like, you know, this is where everybody can go from planet to planet or whatever. And they would have so many different versions of species on each of these planets that, you know, would just be mind blowing. And I think they do a great job of doing that, especially with like the practical effects where they yes. use puppeteers and, and costumes like that instead of trying to do something else. So it's neat how Lucas was able to do these things. And I think that's where like Lucas probably, um, you know, <laughs> Not probably. That's a, you know how Lucas created his name, <laughs> right. right? So like, I don't want to sit there and be like, Lucas is a horrible director because he's not. I think there's just different levels of um, specialties. Like Michael Bay's right. specialty is blowing stuff up. Lucas's specialty <laughs> was special effects on a practical budget. So yeah. like, everybody has their thing. Absolutely. I I I couldn't say that say that more, or, or I couldn't say that better. Excuse me. Uh, one thing I did want to say before we move along, because I find that as I do these shows, even when I've addressed the fact that we're, it's going to be a positive, a Star Wars positive show, like <laughs> even the most diehard, like prequel lovers, we find ourselves walking back. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> we'll get to a point where we want to say something really critical. Uh, so, so that's fine. It's fine to criticize something um, as long as it's done constructively. I mean, I'll go ahead and say that I think it's hilarious that nobody hates Star Wars more than Star Wars fans. Like, that's <laughs> it's it's a sad. That's truth. the thing. Like, that's why I'm like I'm a casual fan because like even though there I didn't there's a couple I didn't like all that much. Like at the end of the day, I'm like it didn't really. Um, sour me to the franchise right. as much as it did some of the other Star Wars fans. Now it may have soured me to characters. Sure. No, I, I yeah, I can understand that, <laughs> Luke. Um, but the the <laughs> idea to me is that I, I do want to be constructive and I do want to be positive, and I don't hate Star Wars. I'm when I say that I'm really referring to sort of the uh, some of the more less savory characters that we've seen on the internet, um, especially after the uh, the release of the sequels, but. Uh, yeah, that the practical effects, man. Absolutely. If you can go practical, go practical. Because to me, that's one of the things that was just so magical about Star Wars or A New Hope, uh, the film from 1977, where all of these costumes and and and, and puppets and um, models, especially the the model work in in this film, is just outstanding. Um, but okay, so we have a situation where if we're if we're looking at it through the lens of the hero's journey we we're moving forward and that fate as it were has intervened and the the droid that they would have purchased explodes before they can get it and luke and uncle owen have r2 which is now the custodian of the death star plans that leia delivered to it um or excuse me delivered to him before her subsequent capture uh by darth vader so now we now we're moving along now we we move to that point we refer to as the catalyst the thing that springs the story forward in a huge way and that's that luke finds this message inside of r2 as uh he's he's cleaning him up and uh and the whole time r2 is totally playing him you know which i find amazing he was like oh uh, i can't play the whole message maybe if you take this restraining bolt off <laughs> I can get the rest of it. And uh, so, yeah, he's he's totally being played. Um, R2 is on a mission, and he's going to get those plans to uh, to Obi-Wan. But that's, of course, unbeknownst to Luke. So 
to me, there's nothing more iconic than that line. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. I can't think of anything more iconic than that. Yeah, it's really hard, um, it, it, especially in the Star Wars universe. I think Darth telling Luke, uh, you know, his father is, is up there. But um, the spoiler, as, like, God, it, yeah, my <laughs> we bad. Have, we my haven't bad. gotten to Empire Strikes Back yet. <laughs> if you didn't already know this, I apologize. No, um, but as far as a quote that literally is the catalyst for the hero's journey or the the catalyst for the the rest of the movie. It's not like a plot twist, right? Like a lot of times you get quotes that are plot twists or like right. these big epic reveals, um, you know, like Maximus Decimus Meridius's quotes um, or quote or, you know, Vader, like I mentioned a minute ago. They're not, they're not typically like the launching point for the film. They're usually like the result or part of the climax of the film. Right. Um, so it's very unique in that, this is a very, very uh, well-known quote for, um, across films, and it's not one of those things. I agree completely. Um, it, it, I think that the, the technology involved and the effect, I have to theorize and I have to kind of use the only tool I have, which is conjecture, um, because I wasn't there. You know, kind of like you said, it was just something that I was aware of constantly as I was growing up, so I didn't really get that shock and that surprise by seeing um that image of leia being projected from r2 but if i had to guess i'd say that probably had something to do with it um so yeah so luke all of a sudden is intrigued and interested number one by a pretty girl but also because uh he mentions obi-wan kenobi which there's a rumor of a ben kenobi that is a hermit who lives beyond the dune sea in tatooine so so he yeah he's he's curious and that that call to adventure is beckoning him and this is something that he's been wanting and craving so um who knows what would have developed of that um however after he takes that restraining bolt off r2 he uh man he he boogies on out of there and and escapes in the evening time and Luke goes to check on him, and uh, and he finds that R two's missing. So it's uh, nighttime, which is not a great time to be zipping around your land speeder on uh, on Tatooine because you have the Sand People, or the Tusken Raiders, as it were, um, which are a very real danger. I still don't know much about them. That's canon. I mean, I'm, there's a ton of EU stuff, of course, but uh, but these particular individuals are not too welcoming towards. Uh, towards outsiders or really just non-Tuscans. Um, so definitely not a good time to be zipping around looking for your lost droid. Um, but again, it's it's fate that intervenes when Luke is attacked by the Tuscan Raiders as, as he's pursuing R2. And, um, and that's what brings Obi-Wan Kenobi to the forefront. He, he rescues Luke and the pieces of the puzzle are, are slowly beginning to fit together. So this is the the encounter or the the, the meeting of, of the sage or the the guru or the wise master as uh, indicated in in the hero's journey which you know after he he helps Luke back to his feet and, and takes him back to his home he reveals that he knew Luke's father which all right if you are a young man and you just get your head bashed in pass out and then wake up and there's this this old guy who's all like hey come back to my house and uh, by the way i knew your dad 
<laughs> I mean, is that, is that is it just me? Or does that seem like kind of weird? I mean, it's extremely creepy. When you put it in that context. <laughs> like, like, what would your reaction be though? Like, I mean, if we identify with Luke, just for the sake of argument, you know, we can put ourselves in his position. Like, what would your genuine reaction to that be? Oh, good lord! I, it's hard to say. That would have been what twenty years ago for me, almost to to be in his his age and mindset. I think I would have been creeped out. Um, if I'm being honest, but at the same time, you know, we live in a society where those types of things occur. Right. Maybe on Tatooine, that was, you know, not really a thing. Maybe like everyone there was kind of <laughs> upstanding outside right. of the Tusken Raiders. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> no, I just, I guess the reason I ask is because it, you have this really, it's a really emotional scene. It's very well done. Um, and again, you know, kind of before I get into that, I, I guess what I'm saying is the convenience of the narrative. Um, it, it does move very quickly. It's like Luke is not anywhere close to an adventure. And then boom, all of a sudden he's at the threshold of adventure. Obi-Wan's like, yeah, I knew your dad. Uh, we fought together in the Clone Wars. And then like he's he's all in, you know. But here's what's interesting. After that emotional reveal of what happened... Um, to Luke's dad when he asked, he's like, how did my father die? Like that was, man, that was superb acting from Sir Alec Guinness. Just everything about the delivery in that scene, uh, was top notch. And I mean, you wouldn't expect anything less from Alec Guinness, of course, but what I find very interesting is after this, this intense moment, this conversation and Obi-Wan says, you know, you must come with me to Alderaan. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Luke's still like, uh no (laughs) and i think that's interesting because that's the exact same reaction that i would have (laughs) you know you're like it sounds cool on paper but like when someone's like yeah come on let's go you're like i I don't know (laughs) yeah i mean i get you know friends who are like hey i want to go do this and i'm like that sounds great. And I'm like, nah, I really don't want to do that. Um, I think for Luke, part of it is like this obligation he feels to his uncle Owen and knowing that he can't just leave him behind yeah. at that point. Um, cause Luke, while he seems to be a little, um, gun ho and hot headed in some aspects, he does seem to take responsibility serious. Yeah. He's a good uh, kid. Yeah. Like I think, so I think a lot of his motivation is there. I will say, um, that I think it's cool that Owen claims that Obi-Wan died, I believe, right? Around right. the time of his father. Right. And then Obi-Wan claims that, you know, Luke's father has died back when he used to be Obi-Wan. So, like, you're kind of getting these, like, symbolic deaths instead of actual deaths. And mm-hmm. almost a hint, right? Because you're being told, like, oh, yeah, your father died around the same time that Obi-Wan died. Uh, but Obi-Wan's not dead. Um Right. So, I told you right? to forget it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. It's like he shuts him down in that conversation. <laughs> you know, uh, he's like, don't worry about it. He keeps asking. Luke keeps yeah. pressing. It's like, hey, I told you. <laughs> forget it. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I mean, there's there's a lot of that stuff that's happening in the subtext, even more so when you, you know, you, you watch the subsequent films. Um, but essentially what takes place to move us to that next step in the hero's journey? He refuses Obi-Wan. 
uh, which is the is the the denial or the refusal of the call to adventure. Uh, the thing that brings him back is, in fact, um, pretty horrific and pretty tragic. And like, and when I'm thinking about Star Wars and how it plays out, I'm like, oh yeah. And then this happens, and then I kind of just gloss over the fact that uh, in pursuit of of the plans. Um, the Empire, of course, sends a detachment to to Tatooine, and they're investigating this whole thing and shaking people down pretty brutally. Um, they find the Jawa Sandcrawler, and they're able to trace the sale of the droids back to the Lars homestead, which Luke kind of figures out and puts together pretty quickly. Um, so he races off to his home, and uh, he finds that his, his uncle and aunt have been murdered most brutally by the look of it and they're just skeletons smoking in the Tatooine sun when he arrives back home which is man that is intense it is and it's I think it's because of years and years of um experiencing that that like or seeing it that it kind of is like diluted for me so when I watch it now like I'm like yeah you know that's what what happened and I don't feel that emotional impact and I think Part of that may also be because it is so quick. It doesn't give mm-hmm. you time right, to really feel it. Because, I mean, like, it essentially happens, and then he's like, screw it, I'm going with you, right? And then and then that's the end of it. Like, it, it didn't feel like there was any real mourning going on right? Um, outside of a brief moment. But to, to sit there and actually think about what happened, it is extremely brutal and horrific to think about, like, your family being murdered in that capacity and knowing, like... Oh man, like think about it though. <clears throat> if the droids would have been there, mm-hmm. w- like what would have actually happened? Like would they have killed the family? Probably, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's the Empire, which you know you could get into these situations where, and and this happens as you get more movies and as the expanded universe continues to develop. You, you get more ideas of, of how nuanced their military can be, like where there are individuals that feel, um, you know, and just sort of have different attitudes towards uh, the brutality that can sometimes be enforced by the Empire. But I think for the sake of this movie, these guys are really bad. <laughs> you know, like they're the bad guys yeah. through and through, and you don't need to think about it any further than that. Um but uh, yeah, and 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 again, if you've seen these films a million times, it definitely seems like we're glossing over quite a bit. Is there anything that you wanted to touch on that has uh, transpired? Because basically, re- what we have right now is Tatooine, and then the and then the Death Star. Like those are the two things we've got: Luke and Obi Wan, and then we've got the Death Star, which is Vader, Tarkin, and uh, and Leia. Yeah, I mean, I think. I don't have anything specific um, outside of some comments about the force and fate and like the convenience factor. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll, we'll kind of pin that for now and see if it comes back up when we get into more stuff with the force later. Cause I feel like it would kind of segue into that. And I don't want to jump too far ahead. One of the things that, and, and maybe we can talk about this first because I think chronologically it takes place during Ben and Luke go to uh, Mos Eisley Spaceport with the droids to, to seek passage, passage excuse me, off of Tatooine. Um, and 
of course, we all know what happens there. We know that they do find passage. Um, but one of the, one of the key <laughs> moments in Star Wars that kind of takes place in the outer world and that does not pertain to Luke's personal journey is the the fate of Alderaan and the uh, the demonstration of what the Death Star is actually capable of. So I've led this quite a bit. Um, if you would like to kind of take over and uh, and just kind of describe your your thoughts and impressions on that whole scenario with the destruction of Alderaan, just sort of what you thought of that scene and, and how it played out for you. Yeah, to your point a minute ago about these are the bad guys and you don't need to think anything of it, I think this scene just amplifies that, right? Because they're searching for... Um, these plans and trying to get back what Leia has stolen from them. And they're manipulating Leia to, um, to a great degree to try and figure that out. And ultimately they end up using this death star to blow up, um, the planet. Um, it's Alderaan, right? Right. See, her casual home planet. <laughs> <laughs> and I do think um, very quick, it's important or at least worth mentioning that it is implied that she was very painfully tortured, um, in, in an effort to, to, uh, to get this information from her. Like you, um, I think as far as like the interrogator droid is concerned, I think it's, a, it's like a combination of physical torture, but also probably something similar to like a truth serum. Um, not sure. I don't remember. I'm not up to snuff on my interrogator droid lore, but I kind of get the idea that it was a, uh, that it's a combination of extreme pain and like a, uh, like a, a mind altering substance that would make you more susceptible to, uh, to, to talking or to loosen your tongue. Anyway, yeah, she, uh, she took it like a champ and didn't give up she, nothing. If that's the case. Yeah. If that's the case, she did. And that's, um, and so, you know, Vader's trying to figure out where the rebel base is and, and tries his approach. And I think like, that's the intent, right? Like you're kind of like you mentioned, like it's, it's kind of spoken as if this type of interrogation occurred or, um, um well, you remember the interrogator droid, like it comes in behind Vader. He's like, and now your highness will discuss the location of your hidden rebel base. And then that no, thing just yeah, kind of yeah, like yeah. whirs and that's the interrogator droid. So so yeah, it, it okay. didn't look like yep. it was there to party. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't. Um, so yeah, so they end up uh, using the Death Star to to show what it's capable of, while at the same time getting back at Leia for not um, breaking and revealing the Rebel base. Essentially, what what takes place is you know Tarkin's like, okay, here's what we're gonna do. Um, you know, you tell us where the base is, or we're going to destroy the, your home planet of Alderaan and uh, which is <laughs> dicked up, <laughs> you know, and of course Leia lies because she's not going to, to tell them where the actual base is. And then, uh, so she, she lies and they don't really have any reason not to believe her at this point, but just for shits and giggles, they blow it up anyway, which yeah. as you said, if they're the ultimate bad guys, then there's not really, there's not really a worse way to demonstrate that. There isn't. I mean, you're talking about billions of people being murdered and out of nowhere um, with no yeah. no warning, right? Um, right. It would basically be like if our planet just exploded. <laughs> like, what's that out the window, honey? <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't yeah. have long to think about it either. You'd be like, hey, what's that? No. Gone. No, um, you really wouldn't. So, yeah, I mean, and 
to think about the future. Like, is there a redeeming, like, is there anything he can do to redeem himself at that point? But pen that for your future discussions. Right. (laughs) Episode uh, six. Yes. Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Well, I mean, come on, man. Like this, that that's a that's a rough conversation to have. It really is. I mean, because it's like once you've committed that degree of uh, of a or that level of atrocity or or genocide to that degree, um, there's not there's not a whole lot of coming back. But you know, again, like you said, that's kind of a of an, another discussion because you know if you were to frame that you know from like a religious perspective in today's world, well, I can think of a number of instances where you might be able to uh, to atone for that, but that's neither here nor there. Okay, so, I mean, one of the things about that to me is I don't know who's more frightening in this scenario. Would it be Vader or Tarkin? Hmm. I think, whew, I almost feel like from her vantage, probably Tarkin um, to some extent, but I think it's definitely implied to be Vader just from the sheer dominance factor that we've seen from him with the Mm -hmm. force choke earlier on and like him clearly being the one that everyone is afraid of. Um, Right. Well, it's interesting because I, I would probably jump to that too. And I hadn't thought of it until I replayed the scene in my head now, but when Tarkin is intimidating her and, and pressing her to reveal the location of the rebel base, like he is consistently moving forward and she's backing up until she runs into Darth Vader and he doesn't even budge. So, you know, it's, it's kind of tough to say you would, you would really be in a tough spot if you were in Leia's shoes in that particular instance, because there's, (laughs) it's not looking good for you. Um, but yeah, so as you had said so eloquently, I, I I think that there's no, there's, there's not a, a better way to, to demonstrate, um, that they are definitely evil for, for all intent and, and purpose evil. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, like our natural inclination is to be like Adolf Hitler is one of the, one of, if not the most evil um, people that's ever existed. And he killed million, you know, he was the one behind the killing of millions and millions of Jews. Um, Well, Vader was the one behind the killing of billions of people. When you put it into perspective like that, you're just kind of like, oh, wait, so he came back? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, 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 no. (laughs) No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, No, because I would totally agree with that statement about Hitler. Um, Yeah, that's, I mean, I don't really, it's funny, actually, I was having a conversation with my friend Luke. Skywalker? uh, No, (laughs) Summerfield. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, they had Remembrance Day and, you know, um, we were talking about World War Two and how I said in this particular war, you could at least clearly identify who the fucking dirtbags were, <laughs> you know, like it was by the time, you know, by the time that uh, by the time the U.S. decided to get involved, it, w- it was there was a clear demarcation between the good guys and the bad guys. And if you were a Nazi, you were a piece of shit, like through and through. Like, and I don't want, I don't care about the personal nuance. Like, I don't care. It's like if that's what you were doing, like you can't polish that turd. You know, like you, <laughs> you were a bad guy. Yep. Um, hundred percent. But hey, that's uh, that's just the way I feel about that. I could be wrong. I sincerely don't, uh, don't think I am though. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't argue um, but, against uh, you on that one. 
so that's that's what's going on in the world um or rather in in the vicinity of of luke's world um so all this is taking place uh, on the death star and luke's in this situation where he's trying to get to that person uh who who is either just watched or is about to watch her home planet uh completely obliterated uh, but in the meantime, he is with Obi-Wan and the two droids, and they're trying to get the hell off of Tatooine. And that is, of course, what brings them to Moss Eisley Spaceport, where you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy, which is one of the best lines ever and has become since memed so many times. I don't <laughs> even know like how to, how to present that number. I think most of the time you see like Washington, like in nestled in the nestled in the rocks there of, of Tatooine, and it's uh, it's here you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy, which might be true. I mean, I've been to Washington D.C. and I kind of know, <laughs> kind of know what's up, um, especially given uh, given our current political climate. But you know what I say to to all these people that want to talk smack about Washington D.C. being a wretched hive of scum and villainy? Clearly, they've never been to Florida. Ooh, burn! <laughs> <laughs> I live here. I, I think I can say with all certainty that uh, DC ain't got shit on Florida. Um, I mean, dude, we're home of Florida man. Okay, like hey, I, that is the best thing in the world. The F- Florida man. Um, <laughs> it it is and it isn't. I for whatever reason, like I had never never realized that that was a thing right that like all these articles mm-hmm. begin with florida man and my boss was like dude you've never heard of that he was like just google it and i googled it and like these most ridiculous things kept popping up and then all of a sudden um one night i was like on the news and all of a sudden kentucky man popped up and i'm like daggone it <laughs> <laughs> i will tell you it is the it is simultaneously the best thing and the worst thing because if you live in florida uh, and well, I should say, if you're me and you find yourself living in Florida, uh, and this has kind of become a running joke, but also the joke is that it's not a joke um, and is in fact quite sad, is that every day is a sincere, honest to God struggle not to become Florida man. You know, <laughs> it's just like don't be don't be that guy like don't get arrested because someone makes a casual racist remark to you and you decide to throttle that person you know like i feel that my intentions would be good in this scenario but nothing would save me from today florida man (laughs) oh my gosh that's awesome it is what it is primary ignition Did you feel that? <laughs> what the force? I I don't know if if it was the force. I think it was actually my complete lack of competence and preparedness, and that uh, my cell phone died. So we're just gonna have to travel through hyperspace to a different point in time and finish this episode. Here we are. I would I would call that the force. I'm I'm perfectly down with that. It is what Tony Stark would refer to as a a, a ripple in the time time ribbon. 
<laughs> nice. So yeah, didn't know uh, you could do that. <laughs> did you ever? Did you ever see that? By the way, the, the Patton Oswalt's Star Wars filibuster on Parks oh, and Rec. Man, it's it's fantastic. Um, I actually just saw it like a week ago because really? my wife and I started watching Parks and Rec. I don't know, like in last November or something. But we didn't get through season one, and we got distracted with holidays and everything. And so finally, like about a month and a half, two months ago, I'm like, we need to start that back. And we have been like binge watching it as much as we can. And we just saw that episode about a week ago. So um, super fresh <laughs> in my mind. And you do a pretty daggone good Patton Oswalt. So, oh, man. Um, it's, it's brilliant. If you haven't looked up the, the unedited version, do do watch that because it just goes on and on. <laughs> I want to find it. I want to find it now. <laughs> I mean, it's it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen, and I I love that when you when you just see someone's unfettered love of Marvel and Star Wars and all of that just spill right out. And Patton Oswalt is like the perfect encapsulation of that. Like he just I don't know, he's just like this little kid that just loves it. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was very good to see, and it it did my heart very well. Uh, so here we are uh, in in the future, or another time uh, along that that space time continuum ribbon thing. Uh, about to get all Doctor Who for a second there. Uh, we are talking about what was it again? Oh, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. And uh, where, when we had left off, or where we left off, we were just discussing the meeting of of Han Solo and Chewbacca and Mos Eisley Cantina as Luke and Obi Wan are seeking passage off the desert planet. Okay, so let's recap real quick. Uh, I think we had mentioned before that the folks at Reader's, uh, or excuse me, Writer's Digest, <laughs> Reader's Digest, totally different thing. Writer's Digest were so kind to provide me with this breakdown infographic of, of the hero's journey as it applies to A New Hope. So uh, let's see, we started the movie with, uh, with Luke as the restless rural farm boy with, with big dreams and, and a path leading really quick to nowhere. And, and and then we move forward through Act One to find ourselves facing the catalyst that starts this. And this whole thing is this whole thing gets going when when Luke finds the message from Leia in the R two unit that uh, he and his uncle had purchased. And then that brings us to the uh, the denial and encounter with the Guru, which comes in the form of Obi Wan Kenobi. And Luke's refusal to join him on his his quest to aid Princess Leia, um, and then of course we have the the acceptance of the the journey or or the task that's been given him, and the action that Luke takes when the stormtroopers track his family down and uh, and slay them on Tatooine. So that brings us into Act Two, which presents us with the trials and tribulations of the hero and the introduction of friends and foes. So we were talking about how this part of the film, uh, we're talking about it from Luke's point of view, but obviously there are things going on in the world around him. We discussed the destruction of Alderaan by Grand Moff Tarkin and, uh, and by association, Darth Vader um, on the Death Star uh, while 
Obi-Wan and Luke Skywalker are securing passage from Tatooine. Does that sound about right? Yeah, sounds spot on. Perfect. So so that brings us to Moss Eisley, which we kinda which we kinda touched on. And this to me, Moss Eisley was the place that really opened up as far as Star Wars was concerned. Like whenever I think of Star Wars, for the most part, now the influence of the the sequel trilogy has kind of played into this a bit, but for the most part, whenever I think of Star Wars, I always think of the Moss Eisley Cantina. How, how did that strike you? Yeah, I mean that's one of the the main major things that like kind of encapsulates all of pop culture from Star Wars. I feel like is that cantina. Um, there's just something about it that's truly unique and memorable beyond what um, we normally get with Star Wars, like just Han Solo, Chewie, Luke, Leia, like the characters are kind of like um, a part of pop culture, but so is the cantina, which I think is a really rare thing to see from a film where like a literal location or a pub or whatever it may be is something that actually stands out or, or like is remembered in such a way. I think maybe the Winchester from Shaun of the Dead um, for people who like that, that might be something yes. like that where like it's beyond just the characters, right? The Winchester is a part right. of the film and that's how I feel about most Eisley. Oh yeah, dude. And, and it's, it's, it's one of those things that too, uh, we've, we've spoken before about how there are certain aspects of filmmaking that sometimes they're appreciated, but they might be overlooked as far as their importance is concerned. And the, the music from John Williams in the cantina as performed in the film by uh, the Bith Figrin Deanne and the model nodes jizz whalers, as it were. Uh, I think that was probably invented before that was a derogatory term for something else. <laughs> maybe, maybe, I don't know. It was 77. I'm not I sure, <laughs> but yeah, I, I hope so too. But I mean, iconic. I mean, you play that music for pretty much anyone, I think, and they're going to know exactly what it is and where it came from. Totally agree. Um, yeah. But um, so. here's here's the thing that strikes me about the the cantina scene. So this is what we what we described as the meeting of friends and foes. Luke is now in this situation where he's surrounded by these ruffians and pirates and uh, and probably low life individuals. He's assaulted by Ponda Baba and uh, Doctor Evans and. Uh, or, or walrus man, and uh, I'm not really sure what he was known as apart from his name. I don't remember, but so he he nearly gets his skull caved in. Obi Wan steps in, um, and that to me was also very memorable. I'll never forget the severing of of uh, old walrus man's arm when <laughs> Obi Wan. I mean, because it's so it's so visceral, you know. And when I was a kid. And uh, that was pretty intense, you know, seeing the, the arm and the blood. It was just kind of like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, it's extremely intense for like a what I would normally consider a family film. I'm like, oh, wow, they went there um, in this film that I guess was what PG at the time, which honestly nowadays could be PG-13. Probably would be. Ratings were back then. Yeah. Um, but just to think about it, like, oh, man, this is something that, you know, um, parents, you know, let their kids watch at a young age. I'm like, holy crap, that guy just got his arm cut off, which, you know, is a long running theme in Star Wars as well. Um, but yeah, it took me by surprise because I honestly uh, had forgotten about it. So when it happened, I was like, oh, wow, I remember that now. And I 
um, I'm pretty shocked that it's in here based yeah. on the fact that when people are shot with lasers, they die in one hit and there's nothing shown about it, like no blood, nothing. And then you actually have somebody get their arm cut off. <laughs> pretty, pretty groovy. But uh, the thing too that I, I really appreciate about that scene is that Obi-Wan, like you, okay, the cantina scene, I think really cements character traits for a lot of different, a lot of different characters that we're, that we're going to be with in this movie. Um, specifically Han Solo, but we'll get to that in a moment. You really see that Obi-Wan is a, a man of peace and that he tries to communicate. He tries to use diplomacy. He uh, is, you know, trying to, uh, to, to get these guys a drink and just kind of smooth everything out. But he's also the fastest one to act when it comes to violence. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, and I would also point that he kind of has this like way about him where he doesn't want it to be drawn out, like the battle. It could be drawn right. out or whatever, but it's no. I want this to be quick and over with because diplomacy isn't working, so it's time to act, and I want to act quick and it be over. Um, which honestly reminds me in a lot of ways now that we're talking about it and like how Batman approaches things where it's just kind of like... I want to take this guy out in as few moves as possible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Except nobody would have been Obi-Wan. standing <laughs> after the fact. Uh, yeah. And, and it, it made an impression and that was, that was all that needed to be done. He, you know, he lost his arm and not his life. Yep. And I would exactly. think that they, they moved on and got the hell on out of there. Um, so in negotiating passage with, with Han Solo, whom we meet through his, uh, first mate Chewbacca is that he is he is that smarmy sort of roguish very cocksure character right um yeah but here's something interesting about this this film and this scene in particular before we get to the falk the falcon before we leave Tatooine we have a scene between a bounty hunter and Han Solo now you could argue that this scene did not really advance the movie. It didn't advance the story. But Han Solo blowing away poor Greedo, uh, I mean, it didn't really add anything to the movie more than just kind of show you that Han Solo is this guy. It's like, did you want to know who he is fully? Well, this, this is it. Yeah, I mean, so I think in the original film, right? Where Han shoots first. Right. I think it, that it does show some type of significance. I don't think it maintains its significance, um, with him not shooting first, but with him taking the first shot. And when, um, when the guy's not expecting it, like that just shows you that Han is all about survival and he's going to do whatever it takes or what's necessary, uh, to put himself first and to survive. Um, so I think it's, pretty important to note that for Han considering where he's starting this journey himself and where he ends the film. Ah, uh, yeah, that's actually a very good point. I'm glad that I'm glad that you said that because it establishes an arc for Han whereas he would have not had one otherwise. I mean, that that just makes me love this movie even more <laughs> actually. Um so so I thought that was really cool. That whole scene, the way that it was framed, uh, the way that we're watching Han uh, pull his blaster, prepare it for a shot, 
while he's talking to Greedo. I mean, the whole thing was just immaculate, in my opinion, and uh, it, it really just adds that nuance that, that makes this, this film what it is for me personally. So as we're moving through tat- uh, t- excuse me, the streets of Moss Eisley, headed towards the Falcon, we get the... Uh, we get the uh, the long snoot making his little damn weird zipping and uh, quacking noises into a calm. So I get the idea that this is he's some kind of spy, and he's alerting the Empire that these guys are on a roll. Now I, I want to say that he is what is it? Cubaz, I think. Cubaz, I think, might be the name of that species. I can't remember right off the top of my head. We'll uh, we'll get somebody on that. Now we're we're at a situation where we're we're boarding the Falcon and we're getting ready to leave Tatooine. Uh, so, is there anything that you'd like to add? Um, the only thing I would also add is like, I love that you kind of reference Moss Eisley and the Cantina as when we start to see character traits really come out and like who these people are um, with Obi Wan and with Han specifically. But I also want to point out that we also get it with Luke. And that he has this naivete to him, mm-hmm. like um, because there's a scene I think where uh, C3PO and R2D2 aren't acceptable inside of the cantina, and Luke, knowing that the Empire has used them to murder his family, and also that Obi Wan has had to use the Force to manipulate the um, the stormtroopers into believing they were not the droids they were looking for, mm-hmm. looks like. Uh, you'll be fine. Go stand outside. Like, there's like what? Um, so like knowing they're being sought after, I feel like anyone who is not naive would be like, um, Obi, you go on and figure out our, you know, transportation. I'm going to go hang out with the droids to make sure they're not caught. Right. Um, yeah. That did always kind of nag me the way he just sort of nonchalantly like, eh, get on out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Anything could have happened, and it almost did. Yeah, so I, I like your point about them using the cantina to really show, you know, how these these people think and how they interact, and you know their their character traits. It's a great placement too, because it is almost exactly the middle of the film. So that, to me, I, I think that that's another credit to Lucas in how he plotted this story out. And, and how he decided to tell it. Uh, there there are very, very few things that I I could take apart and complain about as far as the, the composition of this film is concerned. Okay, so they have hired the, the Falcon to take them to Alderaan, which, which they are now en route to do. We had spoken before about how that's kind of no longer a place. So... <laughs> While b- before they've discovered this, and while they're on their way, we get a little bit more character development. We get a little bit more of Luke stepping into a larger world, as as Obi Wan uh, pointed out to him while he's while he's training with uh, the training remote and the lightsaber. Let me ask you, how like when you watch this movie? And there's that scene between Obi-Wan and Han and Luke as he's training. Uh, what what are your thoughts and impressions on that interaction between the three of them? Um, so, okay, so in this specific scene, we get Han kind of showing that he's the anti-religious um, scoundrel, right? Right. Um, because he's kind of like, ah, oh, it's kooky, bat crap, crazy stuff, this force <laughs> stuff. I believe what I can see and do, you know, and the force is not something you could see. And then you've got Obi-Wan 
who kind of represents this like um, wise old guy who has believed in this religion for um, as long as he knows or as long as we believe him to have existed, basically. And then we have Luke, who is this young, impressionable teen who has been taken under the wings of Obi-Wan and he's kind of instilling this religion into him and Luke is just eating it up. And I think it's kind of designed in a way to show you that kind of um, pull from one to the other as far as um, when you're in this in this teenage life or this young impressionable life, you're going to run into these people who are going to be trying to instill their worldviews upon you. And then sometimes advertently and sometimes inadvertently. And I think Han is like that very inadvertently, like he's not trying to get Luke to side with his beliefs, but he's just very vocal about his. Whereas Obi-Wan knows there's something special about Luke and he's trying to pass that on to him. Um, and Luke is kind of, obviously he's leaning towards Obi-Wan, but I think it's designed to like show us that, that struggle that might exist, um, for us. Because I mean, I think all of us at some point wrestle with some type of like, why are we here question? And, um, it just makes Luke even more relatable in that sense. Like, oh yeah, I remember at a certain point there was somebody who was mentoring into me, um, what they believed while at the same time, like I know enough people in my life that have differing worldviews that they're like Han inadvertently influencing me or, um, um, unintentionally influencing me with their opinions. And I kind of have to sift through that and find my own placement. And I feel like that's what we're getting with Luke here. That, no, that's, that's actually very spot on and, and does make him that central relatable character in that, uh, and that I think a lot of us really do identify with with Luke, especially at, at that age. And and that's actually a very clever thing that you point out because that kind of echoes, or rather, it's it's a foreshadowing of a lot of the things that Luke will experience as he continues to grow as a Jedi, uh, which of course will happen later um, when his when his universe is totally shattered <laughs> and, a, and another film, but uh, no, that is, that is an excellent point. And I lo- I like what you say too about Han, how he's not like um, saying, no kid, you know, don't, don't let this old guy bullshit you. This is how it really is. He's just like, I don't know. <laughs> this, this is what I've seen. Um, he's but. like playing around like I, don't even I feel like he was playing around with the falcon somehow or there was like something he was reaching to but it's kind of like nonchalant like eh, i don't know man like i think eh, he was maybe holding his flight gloves and just kind of like flopping around i don't remember somebody's gonna go oh you don't know the movie as much as you thought you did <laughs> and i'll be like yeah maybe not i don't know man <laughs> whatever that's right i forgot i i the uh, anyway, moving on. <laughs> this kind of puts us into uh, our next step of the journey, which is uh, referred to in that awesome infographic uh, as the edge of the abyss, which, excuse me, the edge of the abyss, which is the next scenario or step in Luke's journey. And that, if he goes any further, and this is, this is what I'm inferring by this, is that if he goes any further into this situation, he will be irrevocably changed uh, for the good, or he may lose his life. It's it's basically unknown 
that he's he's approaching. So at this stage of the story, any further any further and and basically he's relinquished control completely. That's how I interpreted it. Uh yeah, so to your point there, like we're getting into this scenario where Luke has to make a decision and eventually we get to see Han struggle with a similar decision that needs to be made that's going to kind of define them as people and define their future and Luke has this opportunity where he's going to be either able to go to the not necessarily go straight to the dark side but at least start to kind of lean that way you know like right now we'll just say Luke's an independent but he leans kind of to the the light side whereas we're about to see more things happen and experience more of Han being more on the dark side unintentionally and um, Luke's going to have to kind of grasp with that. And even Han does kind of a similar thing. So I think like we don't get a full hero's journey with Han. We do at least see somewhat of a hero's journey with Han, um, maybe a mini version of it. But, um, yeah, so I think you're, you're onto something there or you're making a very valid point and saying like, this is the point of the film where Luke starts to struggle and has to go from one side or the other. And and interestingly enough, it's also the point at which expectation has been uh, completely obliterated in that, okay, everybody thinks that they're going to Alderaan, but Alderaan has been completely demolished. So in a way, it kind of puts everybody in that same position where it's all like, okay, this is where we're going. These are the plans. And, uh, oh no, someone pulled the rug directly out from beneath us. And what do we do? Um, so before they could even really suss out what's happening, there's a TIE fighter that, uh, that passes the, the windshield of the Falcon or, um, and Obi-Wan calls it a short range fighter. He calls it as a short range fighter. And, and very, very soon thereafter, we see the Death Star and Han mistakes it as a moon to which, of course, Obi-Wan replies, that's no moon. Another iconic Star Wars line. Okay, so now at this point, they're being reeled in by by the space station. And Han decides that, uh, that they're not going to get him without a fight. So we don't know what he means by that because clearly the Falcon is not capable of taking on an entire battle station. Or is it? Wink, wink, Return of the Jedi. Um, <laughs> so who knows what's going to happen? Um, the ship is reeled into the Death Star. You you see all all of the different troopers lined up in the hangar, and you you really kind of get this a sense of the magnitude of of the space station, which I think is really cool because we haven't really seen that. I mean, we've seen shots of the Death Star from an exterior perspective, and we've seen interior shots of the Death Star, but we've never really seen um, anything to give it that scale which I think is pretty cool. So, um, so that, that the stage prior was the edge of the abyss. So we can very well say that this next step is, uh, the plunge where, where every difficulty that they encounter, um, will progress the story forward and move Luke along the path of the hero. So it's that obviously he has, he has, uh, he's crossed that threshold on the edge of the abyss and he is now in the lion's den as it were. So basically what they've done is 
they've hidden themselves in these compartments that Han has used for smuggling, which is extremely clever. Um, but of course, you'll ask the question while you're on this extremely well-staffed and fortified battle station, where are you going to hide? Like, where do you go from here? So they infiltrate. Uh, they they essentially are, are reeled into this battle station, and then they infiltrate it through through a very clever trickery. Now, I'm going to stop here, and I'm going to jump to... Um, the rise of Skywalker, because I think that this is one of those scenes that really, really serves to demonstrate the difference between old Star Wars and new Star Wars. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine with me. I can't take the credit for coming up with this myself, um, but it is a great example. So I do want to mention it. Uh, the gentleman over at Red Letter Media, uh, I think it was during a, the Half in the Bag program, they pointed out that. One of the things about The Rise of Skywalker is that these newer films, they just move way too fast. And there are so many things happening and you don't really get a chance to hang on to it and, and really grasp what's happening right. Um, in this scene, in A New Hope, they're reeled into the battle station. They hide. They've got to steal stormtrooper armor. They have to basically use their wits, their stealth, and a whole lot of luck and or the force. Whereas in the rise of Skywalker, basically the same thing happens when they decide that they have to board that star destroyer that has the master homing beacon on it. Right. Um, so basically they do the exact same thing, but it just goes so fast. They're on the ship. Then they're out of the ship. Then they're in a fight. And it's like, really? Like how, <laughs> <laughs> you just you just ran up in there and started shooting when you're vastly out in the, no no like whereas <laughs> you pull back to a new hope and like that's what's happening like we're following these characters as they're doing this thing as they're having this adventure it's not um it's not implied that they had this adventure we get to go on it with them and i i think that that's like really telling as far as how this film takes its time and and the new films perhaps don't I think uh, part of that is the struggle of having a very, um, it's not a huge cast in Rise, but it's a its a group, right, of individuals right, that yeah. go off on these different missions. And right. when you're trying to to give enough time to these characters to, to justify them being in the movie and to do fan service because, you know, people love these characters. <clears throat> Sorry, Rose. <clears throat> um, hey, I love Rose. Her, like, I do. And I know. I think she... But, <laughs> she got a raw she, deal. She did. She's the, like, that's my point. Like she's like the only one that they decided to shortchange in this film in yeah. um, rise. So in rise, you kind of almost have to speed through that because in a new hope, all the core characters are in this one spot. Right. Whereas in rise, if I remember that scene correctly, like everyone's kind of in different things, doing different things. Correct. Um, so, um, that's a that's a difficult thing to juggle, and I think that was um, not to continue to go into different pop culture points, but I think that was a huge fear that people had going into Infinity War is like, how do you handle this cast? And I think the Russo brothers did a fantastic job of kind of giving everybody a chance to breathe and show themselves, like you know, and have their own little stories inside of it or have their moments. Um, so while it can be done a la that movie 
it's not often done well. And I think Rise is one of the movies that just doesn't do it well. And that's why I think it's important if you're going to have a huge cast or a bigger cast and you want to give them all um, justice, you probably need to kind of keep them all together doing the same thing. Like think about Mm -hmm. a Mission Impossible movie. While they might be in separate locations, they're all in constant communication usually to fulfill this this goal. So they're all working together on the same particular thing. Like when he breaks into these buildings or he's climbing, um, that building in India, I can't think of the name of it right now, but whatever it may be, like he's in communication with his group. Um, so they're all working to the exact same end goal where, or trying to achieve the exact same thing. Whereas in like rise, they're trying to achieve sort of the same thing, but they're all kind of not either. Um, and that's, that's the struggle. I think that rise and, and most other movies with casts like that, suffer from i both cannot and will not disagree with anything that you just said like it just can't be done that's, I, <laughs> that's what I aim for. <laughs> um so here we're actually gonna we're gonna streamline and and skip through quite a bit of what happens on the death star uh so I we mean, could just we can pretend that we're we're making a, a newer star wars movie well yeah <laughs> oh nice i like that um to the point of like films now it's kind of okay to streamline the action, not in the film, but in the conversation of the film, because there the stuff to really talk about, uh, in my eyes, is the character development, and there's not a ton of it that happens throughout this. Like you see a little bit more of who Leia is and like her interactions with the group, and like you get the scene with Obi Wan. But as far as like having to to kind of go beat by beat by beat throughout it, I don't think it does any good in right. the conversation necessarily. No, I I would have to I would like I said I I am completely on the same page with you there. Um the Death Star does give us as far as character development goes, it still gives us character development in almost every scene and almost literally just how you described it, you get these conversations between Luke and Han as as they're going through the Death Star. You know, Obi-Wan says that he's going to split because he's got to disable the tractor beam. So he's on his side mission. So I guess you could say that they do kind of break away a little. Um, but it allows us this opportunity to see how Han and Luke interact with one another. And they haven't known each other, but for what? I mean, how long do you think it took to leave Tatooine and travel to Alderaan via hyperspace? What was that like? Maybe six or seven hours travel, eight hours? Who knows, right? I mean, I have no idea. They I'm haven't known each other. Very... I'm sure there's somebody that knows. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you out there listening, send me a message and let me know. <laughs> I want to know, like, you know, I'm sure they stopped at, like, you know, like a spaceport and grabbed, like, a, a, a greasy Womp Rat burger somewhere, you know, like you do when you're traveling. But the point is, they don't know each other. Um, but they, we observe their interactions and how they kind of, get to know each other while dealing with this situation. Uh, you know, like you were saying before about Han being in it for himself. He's like, <laughs> and, and I love how confident he's like, when we're done with this, <laughs> I, I am out. You know, um, they, they discovered that the princess is scheduled for termination, but in so doing, they discover that, you know, she is on the Death Star and they can rescue her. And Luke has to lure Han into the idea uh, with the notion of money, which... Let me ask you this. Do you really think he would have had to bribe Han? I kind of get the feeling that Han would 
he's playing hard to get. I think he's up for this and he's he's going to do it regardless. Yeah, I think I think Han has this way about him where he just kind of likes to screw around with the kid. Um, yeah. And and that's kind of the vibe I got from it. Now it could just be the way that the scene was directed or maybe um Harrison Ford acted it and maybe that was not the original intent. I don't know. Um but that's the same vibe I got like yeah, he's going to come to a senses and he's going to do this, but it's going to take him like a little bit of time to do it almost yeah. foreshadowing that like the end of the movie is you know that he's going to be the same with the end of the movie where like he's gonna kind of say like nah i'm out don't really want to do this but then do it anyway so like mm-hmm. i think this this whole conversation kind of foreshadows that no you're you're absolutely right um because there is continual foreshadowing of han's ultimate choices and how they play out in the film um let us close off the plunge, as it were. Basically, what happens is they have to scheme and plot their way through so many levels of the Death Star to get to the detention center, um, where all hell breaks loose, as it were. And uh, they do manage to find the princess. Here is where we get to see what Leia is all about. I mean, from the beginning of the movie, you get the notion that she stands up for herself. She's not going to take shit from people, even if they tower over her as a dark lord of the Sith. She's not backing down. Um, and we think maybe because she's the damsel being uh, you know, held captive in distress when, when the guys show up, the first thing that comes out of her mouth is, aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? <laughs> 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 and, and then she takes the weapon from them as they're pinned in, and she is the one that gets them uh out of the jam you know so you have kind of a reversal of a common trope where the guy or guys sweep in to save the day they're kind of fucked you know <laughs> like they they've their steam has run out you know their their cleverness has run out they're trapped in this uh detention block and uh and she's the one that gets them out of it when i going back and rewatching this i it's like occurred to me that my opinions about leia have been misconceived and i think that the slave bikini in return has a huge part in that because like going into this like in my mind i'm like this is from the seven late 70s early 80s mm-hmm. and that was kind of before women were known to have powerful roles in films like this so in my mind i'm like just envisioning like how she was seen and you know, um, return. And, uh, and I just kind of anticipated her being like the straight up damsel and, mm-hmm. um, the eye candy kind of piece, but instead she's actually really powerful and she's very forceful and aggressive and, um, a way ahead of her time in some respects. And it was nice and comforting to see that knowing like, well, you know, he actually wrote her with some depth to her beyond what, uh, most male writers may have done at the time. But it's also disconcerting that my mind had already like been tainted by so much in mm. pop culture that I kind of, you know, went into it thinking she was different than she was. I kind of wish the stuff that in this and I might be the only one that was impacted this way, like other people might not see it that way. But anyway, it was nice to see that she had this this power to her. And um, it's interesting that you say that, too, because now in time especially the way that even though it seems like so much is fucked up right now um, 
in our society and you know the twitter mob and god forbid the president of the united states and and all of that it seems like things are kind of in a bad spot um one interesting sign of our development i think and a lot of fanboys are i don't think they really agree with this and you piss off a lot of the dude bros that love you know star wars and uh love x-men but are also bigots at the same time you know the that, that weird sort of <laughs> like combination that you can get uh is the idea of uh taking the name slave leia and kind of not getting rid of it but moving it over um there was a book by claudia gray where there is a character and i don't want to get too much into the plot of this but he refers to her as the hut slayer which kind of stuck because it takes that position of vulnerability and um, being dominated away and instead gives it a a power Um, so a lot of times now especially when you see that image on Twitter and what have you, she's referred to as Hut Slayer Leia and not Slave Leia, which, you know, I don't really care personally, um, but I do think it's cool. And it, it kind of shows you that things are capable of moving in a constructive, positive direction. I'm glad. I'm glad that that's the case. I did want to mention that to you because I think that when we have conversations, especially when I'm on your turf and we're talking about Marvel and X-Men and things like that, where, you know, uh, the ideas of um, progress and, and being progressive are often talked about. And you know what? I'm I'm at this point in my life where I realize that I'm a grumpy old man and I realize that a lot of the times when I resist change, it's just because I don't really, it's not the way I've done things, you know? So I've got this really weird sort of realization now where it's like, okay, you don't have to resist it just because you aren't familiar with it. You know, you, you can let it ride. You don't have to be like that. Um, (laughs) Does that make any sense? Oh yeah, it makes um, so, perfect sense, and that's what a lot of people struggle with in our society is that adaptability and that yeah, flexibility. It's, it's uncomfortable because you're like, oh, um, maybe I have to re-examine the way that I think. Maybe the way that I was thinking was not correct. It's it's not automatically right just because that's the way I've always done it. Um, but I digress. <laughs> so. So we have Hut Slayer Leia versus Slave Leia, and I think either one is acceptable, but you know, you do you, I guess, is what I mean to say. <laughs> okay, so I, I do want to finish talking about the Death Star and that, you know, obviously they escape, and, uh, and that's really exciting. But two really important things happen, or really one really important thing happens, but I do want to point out that as Luke is escaping with Leia after he gets separated from Han and Chewie, he swings over a little abyss like there's the bridge that's out and he so he literally swings over an abyss which i think is when you're talking about george lucas and you're talking about writing i think that was a little on the nose but i also think that it's kind of cool too that you see him literally crossing an abyss at that point i like that you point that out uh i don't know that it's necessary for the film no, not at all. It, like I said, yeah. that's why I think it's kind of on the nose. Um, and it's like, oh, yeah. we have to visually represent him crossing the abyss. We have to see him crossing, the, you know, and I'm just like, okay, whatever. But I, you know what? I'll allow it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so that brings us to the next step in act two, uh, which is the payoff. 
the payoff for the hero, the payoff for crossing the abyss. And for the most part, uh, the payoff is that they set out to do what they, uh, or excuse me, they, they accomplished what they set out to do. Uh, and that was to, to meet with Leia and, and, um, bring Obi-Wan to her. They didn't know necessarily it would be a rescue mission. Um, and they didn't know that Obi-Wan was going to sacrifice himself in the process so that they could escape. So unfortunately that payoff does come with, with a negative as well. Um, so, all right, I have to ask you as a non diehard star Wars fan, I don't like using the term casual cause I think it's, it has too many negative connotations. Um, what are your thoughts on the face-off between Obi-Wan and Darth Vader? Okay, so this is where I will alienate your listeners even more than I already probably have at this point in the conversation. Sounds good. Um, so just throwing that out there. This is about to do it. Because this scene exists, I cannot justify the end of Rogue One. Interesting. Okay. Because Vader's movements in this film and the subsequent films indicate an old man near age of Obi-Wan whose speed isn't there. His capability in the force is there, but his speed isn't. And Mm -hmm. in Rogue One, it's supposed to happen, what, moments before A New Hope begins, right? Correct. Yeah, where he goes through and just like, it's like that, that dream that everybody has of like seeing Vader in his prime, they -hmm. wanted to throw that in. So like, I hear a lot of people complain about fan service and rise, but then say rogue one is their favorite star Wars film. Um, at least from the modern films. And I'm like, well, that is nothing but fan service because it doesn't mesh with how we pick up with Vader. So like, I think viewing that scene now, it, it, it just, kind of annoys me that rogue one did that. Um, whereas like had rogue one not existed, I would probably view that scene entirely different than I do now, but it's like one of those. Now the new film has tainted my view in some way that a lot of Mm, diehard star Wars fans feel. No, I, I can totally understand that. Um, because there is clearly some continuity, (laughs) error or some (laughs) issues with continuity there and as a fan for me it it doesn't really bother me just because i know that if they could have done that at the time they would have um which is ironic to me that lucas is always throwing in new stuff that just to me is an eyesore and completely unnecessary but then he doesn't beef up some of the things that like probably do need to be beefed up now, I understand he's probably limited on a technical level, um, but at the same time, it's just kind of like, really? Like, <laughs> out, of, <laughs> out, of, out of all the things, this this is where you chose to, to spend your time. But no, I yeah. totally get what you're saying, because it is jarring, especially if, you know, you're watching these, say, you know, in a casual sequence or whatever, and and then you're like, wait a minute, why is he sluggish here? but a killing machine over here. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. If you watch Um, it in the chronological order, it's got to be really messed up. Um, Right. And that, and that perspective, I do want to say like my initial impressions though, is like when you watch the prequel trilogy, there's like a flamboyancy to the, 
to the lightsaber duels, oh, which yeah. adds like spectacle to it, right? It's like sure. almost the Taekwondo of um, of martial arts or whatever. Um, but the way that I've always, at least before Rogue One, looked at Vader in this wasn't um, and that he was using speed. It was using power, like almost like how someone like oh, he yeah. was wielding this lightsaber almost in a way that someone would wield a broadsword right where it was more about like i'm making these movements knowing that like one hit is going to end it if i can connect mm-hmm. um so i don't need to be flashy i don't need to be fast that's kind of how i had viewed it um in previous viewings of it but in the yeah. you know after i'm actually one, i'm kinda, totally with that as a matter of fact that is exactly how i viewed it um, when I was younger. Now I'll tell you what threw me off. Now this was before the prequels and all that business was uh, reading some of the expanded universe stories where there's a narration of a saber fight or something like that. And it was so tough for me to imagine Vader specifically moving the way that he was being described in the narration um, because it was a lot more uh, fluid. You know, he was being more agile and whatnot and i was like what my brain i can't (laughs) like this i I don't want to reveal the the limits of my imagination here but i had a difficult time envisioning it yeah i Um, mean i I think i think that's where so the expanded stuff was not written by lucas correct no no all of that stuff back in the day was approved by lucasfilm but it wasn't like george lucas was reading everything and saying yep good check Good check. Nope. Send it back. It was, yep. You know, that's not how, how that, how that so with, came about. With that in mind, like Lucas, I would assume as he's kind of plotted out these three films knows what Vader is actually like underneath of this mask and that he actually needs this suit to keep him alive more or less. And that, um, he has had this brutal encounter with Obi-Wan or whoever. I'm assuming he knew it was Obi-Wan, um, when he wrote these. Oh Yeah. Without a doubt. It. But that like he's obviously a different and changed man and he's honestly kind of like barely living because you know sure. like just um so he's not gonna More be more machine fast. now than man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I so agree. like I think I think Lucas knew that and I think it's cool if you think about it from the sense that before Vader was Vader and he was Anakin, that right. he had this speed and flamboyancy to him. And then he had to adapt and grow and change his methods after his encounter with Obi-Wan and Revenge. Yes. So I think that adds a unique and um, creative layer to Vader's story yes. that, again, now that I'm thinking about it, just makes me even more annoyed with the end of Rogue One because it kind of like takes that away. But whatever. Well, I, <laughs> you know, at the risk of being a guy who, you know, uh, really wants to um, impose his will, I think you should watch it again. Um, that scene because he doesn't move like the cats from the prequels. He is, it is still very domineering and basically he just plows through them. Um, Like I can definitely see what you're saying and clearly those aren't the the movements of the same character. But I I think if you watch it again, you'll see it's a little bit more cramped um, and he's not necessarily being super flashy. Um, but I could be wrong. I might just be romanticizing it because I fucking love that scene so much. Um, <laughs> oh, but, it's an amazing uh, scene. But I would say maybe, own. yeah, it just doesn't mesh 
or or sync up to uh, sync up to a new hope. So I, I definitely get that. I mean, you get that through Empire, and you get that in Return of the Jedi. I mean, each saber duel seems to improve a little bit in every film, but I always got the impression that it it was more like you said, um, more of like a broadsword, and you know, with larger sweeping movements. And uh, you know, it wasn't until the prequels that we saw what could be done with the choreography and sabers, and whether that was good or bad. I, you know, that's I'm not going to debate that right now. And maybe okay. So here, I'll I'll justify Rogue One's differences in my mind right now, real easy. Okay. Uh, that Vader is fighting Obi Wan, and that Obi Wan is now older, but Vader knows that Obi Wan could end things in one hit, so he has to be slower and more methodical. Because one mistake could end Vader just as easy, easily as it could Obi Wan. I'm with that. I can. Yeah, I, I feel can like definitely that helps pick me. up what you're putting down there. <laughs> yeah, and it's so funny. Like you can always do like all types of mental gymnastics to make something work for you. You know, if if it's if it's involved in something you love, <laughs> you, know, yeah, you can make that, it work. I think that does enough for me that I could go back and watch Rogue One and and not get annoyed. So there good. We go. I would. Ha- I would hate for you to be. Yeah. I would. It would truly hurt me to know that you were annoyed by by Rogue One, especially that. But um, but here we are. Um, we've escaped the Death Star and we've we've gone to um we've gone to Yavin Four, which is where the Rebel base is actually at. And of course, Leia doesn't think for a second that the Empire just let them escape from the Death Star, even with Obi-Wan's sacrifice and disabling the tractor beam and squaring off against his former uh, friend and former uh, Padawan and Jedi in arms, not not Jedi Master in arms. Ha <laughs> ha, Anakin. <laughs> Never granted the rake of Master, but anyway. So I don't want to, I don't want to like um belittle or or gloss over the importance of that duel um i will say before we move along that it does establish that lucas had very specific things in mind um as pertaining to obi-wan and vader in that the dialogue between them establishes a very sordid and intense past and to me that was one of the reasons why i always loved the original trilogy because you knew that there was so much more to it. And especially with that being titled episode four, a new hope and, you know, being the first star Wars movie anyone had ever seen, you knew that there was so much more to it. And, and that's one of the reasons also I love those, those original movies. Definitely. I'm, I'm with you on that. I think that's a unique way to handle a movie is to just kind of throw you in the middle of this, like, sorry, it's not a unique way in which to handle a movie by throwing you into the middle of a story, but to title it as if it's in yes. the middle of a saga. It's like that you started the whole thing. thing. In media res. Like yeah. They're <laughs> right there. Um, so this brings us to the last act of the movie. And I do kind of want to move through this a little quickly because I think there are points that we should talk about um, that we have kind of touched on earlier in the show. Uh, so this is Act 3, and the first part of Act 3 is uh, what we're going to refer to as the way through. So we're kind of going to get sort of like uh, the sum for Luke of, of everything that he's been through so far. Um, they have to 
they have to find a way to A, not die, and B, stop the Empire. They have the technical plans for the Death Star. They've examined it, and they think that they can take advantage or exploit the weakness of that exhaust port on the Death Star. Um, so Luke has to prove himself. That's the part of the hero's journey that we're on. He has to prove himself. He is he has thrown himself fully into the idea of helping Leia. He's committed to it, so now he has to see that through. And the way that he does that is by being given his own X-Wing and uh, being made part of the, uh, the I believe, the Red Squadron with, uh, with Wedge Antilles and Biggs Darklighter, who is his friend from Tatooine. Um, I don't know if you knew that. There was Biggs and, and Luke. Obviously, they know each other, and that's established when... When he sees Biggs on uh, in Yavin in the hangar, but there was a deleted scene that featured a conversation between Biggs and Luke on Tatooine before he uh, before he takes off. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's when he tells him that he's he's joined the rebellion, and that was that was a moment between those two characters. But um, so Luke is is put into this tremendous situation, and they're just they're facing impossible odds <laughs> and, and you're like wow that's actually <laughs> that's actually pretty intense yeah it's almost it's a suicide mission is what it would feel like basically and yeah you either for most succeed, of them it is yeah you either succeed or or everyone that you've met up until this point is probably going to die so in the in the hangar it's also where han decides that after he's been paid i'm assuming he has because he's loading all of those carts um or all of those containers onto a cart or dolly. And uh, and he basically gives the impression that he's been paid, so he's out. You know, and Luke's just kind of like, you know what? If that's the way it's going to be, then that's how it's going to be. It was nice to know you. Um, but before Han leaves, he says to Luke, may the force be with you. So what do you think he meant by that when he said it? What do you think his intention was when he said that to Luke? Mm, that's a great question. I think I think in a way it's him trying to encourage Luke to continue seeking what he wants to seek. Whereas like Han may have already kind of made up his mind or at least at that point had made up his mind that he didn't really believe in the force. He knew that Luke was still seeking it. So it's kind of like um, where maybe an agnostic or something might not be committed to a belief in God and but might still say god bless you to somebody right um or god be with you um when they're when they're leaving their um religious friend because it's a, a sign of respect to them i think i think it's like han signifying now that he kind of respects luke and luke's journey at that point that's an awesome thing to to get out of it because he had every moment or opportunity to be like, Luke, this, this is bullshit. You're wasting your time. Come on. I can see you're a good pilot. Uh, you're a good shot. You could hop on the Falcon and we could get out of here, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I mean, he was just like you said, he was just like, may the force be with you. I think that's so awesome to, to not discourage him and encourage him to, to look out for himself when he sees that he could actually say something encouraging to this kid. And that's another, that's another um, plus for Han in my book and just makes him that much more uh, compelling, but also likable as a character. 
Yeah, he's a nuanced character where like you see what he did in the cantina and you think, oh, this guy's a D-bag or whatever that's only out for himself. But then you see this mm-hmm. and you're like, mm, that's he's kind of got that heart of gold to him a little bit. He just puts on yeah. a show. Yep, exactly. So we all pretty much know what happens uh, at this point. The Death Star is, at first, it looks like they're they're putting a huge dent in things. They're taking out the surface cannons on the Death Star. Um but uh, Darth Vader makes the call that they need to attack them ship to ship because the uh, the rebel ships are too small to to really be um, destroyed or or uh, to be countered in any way. So you, things are looking good for the rebels at first, then all of a sudden, not at all. And I do want to say that this whole sequence is done so well with Leia in the war room watching the countdown to when the Death Star will be in range to fire because everything about the scene cuts, the soundtrack, um, Darth Vader and his his TIE fighter wingman taking out all of these rebel ships, it just builds such a suspense, uh, at least for me. Like, I was on the couch, and I've seen this movie, like, seriously hundreds of times, and... Uh, and I was nervous, you know, like I know how it's going to play out, but the combination of all those things just made for a really suspenseful, dramatic moment. Yeah. I mean, the pacing of it is near perfection for something of that, um, some type of an event like that, right. Where the action's going on, but there's somebody that's viewing it or, you know, listening to it or watching or whatever. That's kind of like your proxy, right? Like they're, they're Mm -hmm. kind of emulating you. So if it's done in a really well done way, when you're seeing them, they can almost project their feelings onto you so that you kind of start to feel what not necessarily the fighters are feeling because you're not in that particular scene, but maybe what the people viewing it are feeling. So like you're feeling Leia's emotion right. and it's almost taking over you. So the way in which they clip that and the way in which that um, Carrie Fisher acts that scene, like you kind of, you know, you almost empathize with her um, naturally or without even trying. And that kind of helps add to the tension of like, will they or won't they succeed in this mission? Absolutely. And to me, you get that release from all that tension. You get a reprieve from the buildup when we get to the next step in in Luke's journey. And that that is the true test of everything that he has experienced and learned since he's been on this journey. And that is he chooses to let go and surrender the use of his targeting computer and to to trust his his uh his unconscious um or less conscious self as it were when he hears obi-wan speaking to him presumably from beyond the grave um or beyond a pile of robes on the death star however however you want to look at that so that that's the true test and he he passes it he aces it the he bullseyes that uh exhaust vent with those torpedoes however darth vader is right on his ass and he is locked on to him and he's about to blow luke away when we get what appears to be at first the deus ex which i want to talk just a second about the deus ex because 
usually that's one of the worst things you can do in a story unless there is an exception to that for me and that is if you present a viable enough and cohesive enough trail uh, of foreshadowing and hints that make it plausible and of course that comes in all the little things that Han does to show that he's not all that bad he comes in he shoots Vader. His tie advance goes spinning off to wherever. And normally you'd be like, oh, that's bullshit. You know, we call that for what it is. But I think it works. Yeah, and I think a big reason that it works is that scene we kind of talked about earlier where you kind of knew Han was going to go save the princess or, you know, attempt to save the princess, um, even though he's letting on that he's not going to. Like there's mm-hmm. this just hint of, of him. So yeah, I, I think it works here. I think it works as well as anything else in the film, as far as, you know, the timing or the questionable timing, like, sure. um, like, Oh wow. There's this one spot, right. Where, well, that the death star would be destroyed. Death star would be destroyed from. So it's, it's like, there's a real reliance in the force, um, or belief in the force guiding these people and these decisions and mm-hmm. the outcomes of them. So I think in the context of the film, it works perfectly fine. Yes. Yeah, I, I really think so. It's not one that I am too hung up on because that, for me, that's one of the biggest, one of the biggest things that you can do to ruin a story, uh, especially if I've enjoyed it up until that point. That can really change my attitude um, very, very quickly. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the miraculous saves. Um, but that that's it. I mean, that's essentially Luke's journey. Obviously, this continues. His journey continues. But for the sake of this story, this film, and I guess for the sake of this podcast, um, that's where Luke's journey uh, is ends. Because the last and final step is the return to the new normal. It's the last part of Act 3. And that is that Luke, he saved the day. And he's recognized for it. And Han is recognized for it. Chewie wasn't so much. Didn't receive a medal, that guy. I don't get it. Even the droids got an oil bath. Uh, <laughs> you know? So Chewie was just kind of like, yeah, I was there, but no big deal. Maybe he got groomed. Um, maybe. I don't know. I, I don't remember if he looked better for it or not. But, I mean, it's a great scene. It's intensely dramatic. The, the throne room walk and the, the presentation of the medals by, uh, by Princess Leia. And it was just, it was the perfect end. Uh, it was the perfect fanfare to what in my mind is pretty much a perfect movie. So that is, that's my general attitude towards this movie. Where, where, where do you stand overall on, on your thoughts regarding this film? Yeah, I think, um, so going into it, I think some of my opinions changed. Um, like my memory of it was that it was slower than I would have liked, but watching it, I actually feel like it's a pretty well-paced first movie into a universe. Um, especially Mm -hmm. considering how some of the, um, universe building films have become, uh, you know, like where everyone's trying to do what the MCU has done, like Warner brothers and some of the other ones in there trying and failing. Yeah. And I think this one does a really great job of establishing a new world and making you curious to find out more. And I think the idea of structuring it around the hero's journey really works. And 
allowing it to be relatable um, really helps it. And I don't really have an issue with the pacing it with it as I expected or what I remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, I do feel like modern movies have ruined me when it comes to action where um, fast paced can be a lot more entertaining to watch or at least mm-hmm. make me want to go back and watch it more. Um, but I think it is like, so let me, let me say it this way. Um, Iron Man is a much more watchable movie for me than Batman Begins, but I think okay. Batman Begins is a better movie. So like, no, I, I understand. Yeah. So I feel that kind of way with New Hope where it's a better movie than in most of the modern films, but I would find more watchability in some of the newer ones because it's, it's, it's just a lot quicker pace and I don't have to yeah. think as much through it and I can kind of do other things with it. Um, no, I, I totally get that. Yeah. But I think as far as a quality film, I mean, I, I, we don't really do ratings on the show, but I would rate it pretty daggone high as a film. Yeah. Yep. And, and the only reason I mention a rating at all is because we had discussed it earlier. Yeah. And I, uh, and your yours were what were they again? Oh, yeah. My, my perfect tens um, were Gladiator, Braveheart and Matrix. And um, I would have to like I kind of mentioned in that I would want to go back and watch this other film that I'm about to mention one more time, at least before making a decision on it. But a film that I watched one time nearly 18 years ago or so that has stuck with me ever since is rear window by Hitchcock. Mm. Um, yeah. You, you, you had mentioned that and I will just for the sake of honesty and, and for the listeners, I did admit fully to not having seen that movie. So <laughs> I'm, I'm aware that I'm behind on my Hitchcock and I don't know if I need to turn in my, uh, I don't know if I need to turn in my critics membership card, but it is what it is. Nah, no, you don't. I feel like that's, one of the few Hitchcock films I've seen, but I just remember being so engrossed with it in a way that I didn't expect for an old film. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, those were those were mine. As far as the film is concerned, what is your favorite thing about it? What did you enjoy the most? Um, I think the world that it establishes and builds. Um, I think the, you know, we've kind of talked favorite characters or whatnot. I think Han is the most enjoyable character. So he brings like a levity to it mm-hmm. that I think fits well um, with modern films in a way. Uh, and maybe even was like the progenitor mm-hmm. for that. Um, but I think the world that it builds and establishes is kind of my favorite thing about it. Awesome. Yes, sir. And it definitely does that. And and in spades, in my opinion. Now, since you've watched this so recently... And, and again, you, you kind of mentioned comparing this to other films of, of today, but also yesterday, uh, or yesteryear, I should say. What was your least favorite thing about it? Ooh, that's a tough, that's a tough one. Um, You're not going to hurt my feelings. I'm trying I to think. I can promise you that. Okay, so least favorite part. That's, um, that's a difficult thing to answer. I think maybe two things, um, and they're okay. minor grievances at best. They're not like, um, yeah, they're not very significant, but, uh, but for me personally, um, while Luke is meant to be relatable and was probably mm-hmm. relatable when I was pretty young, I actually don't generally like Luke. Um, I like Han a lot. I like Leia a lot, Chewie a lot, and I like Obi-Wan 
a lot. Um, but Luke is the one that I feel like, even though he's the hero of the journey, is kind of the weak link as far as character. Um, okay. At least in personality. Um, there's just something about him that... Uh, and I, I don't think it's Hamill's fault. I don't think it's Lucas's fault. I think it's just my own personal issue where I just feel like he comes off a, a hint whiny. And, I, and that kind of irritates oh, yeah. me. Whereas the cool thing about Luke that I actually like a lot now that we've kind of been talking about it is that Luke is actually the new hope. Um, so I think that's an interesting point, right? Like the whole idea is a new hope for the rebellion or whatever, but really Luke is the new hope. Mm -hmm. Um, he's always optimistic. He's always bright eyed and bushy tailed, so to speak. And he's always kind of like, um, hopeful that they're going to be able to achieve these things throughout the whole movie. So, so really calling it a new hope is awesome because it works twofold and specifically about Luke being the new hope for the mm -hmm. Jedi specifically. Um, the other thing that kind of isn't really like a least favorite thing. It's just kind of like one of those, like if you ask me to kind of like nitpick, sure. um, I think with the time that he has, he does a great job establishing Vader as a villain. But mm -hmm. really, this is kind of one of those films where I would look at and go, why are people okay with it in this film? But some of the modern movies that choose to focus on the hero and not the villain, they're not okay with. Like, mm. there's a lot of complaint in modern films where there's not enough screen time for the villain to establish the villain as a character or like motivation. But Vader doesn't really get any of that from what I can remember in the film. He's kind of in it and he's established as a dominant force and something to be feared, which is cool. And he's an amazing mm -hmm. character and he gets it over the subsequent films. But in this one movie, I don't feel like he does. And I think, I think it works to the film's, um, betterment like i think mm -hmm. it helps the film be better because it is specifically about luke um but i do find it interesting that people seem to be okay with it in a new hope but not in some of the newer films mm. yeah i i could definitely i could definitely agree with that and i, I do see where you're coming from on that angle and it kind of reminds me of the question i had asked before about who you thought was more frightening vader or tarkin or like who is really the bad guy you know um, and I, th I think that I, I, I think that it's definitely Tarkin, um, specifically if, if Vader was the second choice specifically for all the reasons that you just mentioned, um, why he would not be the main villain. Um, and, but like you said, though, that does work for his, that works for his benefit and it works for our benefit because I think it makes for a, a better film overall. What's what's your least favorite? Um, my least favorite thing about A New Hope, uh, man, I I can't answer that because I just don't think that I have a least favorite part, um, or a thing that I think should change <laughs> or be different. You know, I I really don't. I think that it's immaculate. Um, so I didn't didn't offer it a ten out of ten. Um, and I guess. I didn't because it, um, for the reason that you just mentioned, it, the lack of countless like rewatchability now that I've seen it 
you know, hundreds of times growing up. It's not one that I would just put on. So if I had to have a complaint and that would be very nitpicky, I'd say that that would be it. Um, cause all the usual criticisms that I hear just don't work for me. Um, people saying that the acting wasn't good or, you know, that the effects were bad. And it's like, of course the effects were bad, you know? Um, but considering <laughs> what it was, it was pretty groundbreaking. I mean, if you watch it now, there are still some things that, that other filmmakers could take, um, take heed of and, and use to their betterment, uh, as far as, you know, like practical effects and, and what you can do with, you know, what, what you have on hand and not necessarily, uh, what you add with a computer. So I'm not saying the effects were bad. I'm just saying that, you know, to expect this cutting edge technology from a film from 1977. Um, no, that's, that's just silly. So, um, yeah, I guess just rewatchability. It, it doesn't, doesn't have that for me. I would, if I was going to rewatch a film from the um, original trilogy, just to have it on, it'd probably be uh, Return of the Jedi, um, even though Empire is my absolute favorite. But um, yeah, man, I just, I can't, I can't give it a solid 10 out of 10, but I can't say that I have real complaints with it either. So maybe that's just nostalgia speaking. Uh, I would like to distinguish, though, your your point there. Um, I want to be clear that when I list my least favorite things about the movie, I wouldn't change anything about the movie. So I think that was a good distinction distinction that you made, and I want to like piggyback off that. Yeah, I'm 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 in the same boat, man. I would not change a thing because usually when I think about changes, I think about what we could do without and what we can cut. Um, what would make the film flow better? You know, what would shave off something redundant? And I just can't, I cannot think of anything that is redundant or unnecessary or that we need to lose. So I don't know, man, I might have to give it a 10 actually, because I'm finding all these reasons to, <laughs> I'm finding all these reasons that it fully deserves a 10. So, so that's where I'm at. And this is the only time I think on any of my shows where I've ever, you know, we've ever discussed like where would we rank it uh you know because usually it, if we talk about that at all it's about star wars movies and where they fit into our personal rankings um Ooh, but uh yeah that's rankings. neither here nor there yeah i took a really long like uh test on on a web i can't remember what it was but it was like you know like when you're at the ophthalmologist and they give you the lenses. They're like, is this better or worse? Better or worse? Clearer worse? You know, it was like that. Yep. But for every Star Wars movie, it's like, okay, so which one do you like the most? Okay, compared oh. to this one, which one do you like the most? And then now compared to these two, which one do you like the most? And mine was pretty predictable. Like when it came out, I was like, yep, that looks about right. Um, every prequel movie was at the end. <laughs> and uh, Empire was at the top. And I think Rogue One came after Empire. And then it was A New Hope and Return of the Jedi and then um, the sequel films and Solo. Like, I can't remember exactly, but if I find it, I'll probably post it. Um, but yeah, that's that's all I've got, man. Um, I, I think we can I think we can call this one done. I think we, we did a good job. I tried something new, and I think that it was successful enough to, to warrant uh, putting this out. Me too. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Awesome. I look forward to talking to you again soon, man. I hope you have a good night. Yep. See you, man.
Alright y'all, that was a ride. And no one got hurt, at least not to my knowledge. Big thanks again to Brian Byerly for taking time out of his late, late night to talk Star Wars with me. It's always a pleasure, Brian, and I look forward to having you back on the show. Next month, we're talking The Empire Strikes Back with my good friend, Mr. Jeff Glenn, and I'm super stoked for that one, as it is my favorite Star Wars flick.